This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Best Friends Podcast. Hope you had a fantastic Labor Day holiday. Today is September the 8th. My name is John Dunn and this week we're talking about shifting your mission. It doesn't matter how big your organization is, whether your budget is $500 million or 5000 Over time, the needs of people and pets in your community change. So looking at your programs, are you doing the right things, the things that are most needed in your community to save as many lives as you can? Chances are you probably can find ways to improve what you're doing, and some of the shifts might not take a lot to do. Create better partnerships, maybe just starting a simple new program to support the shelter directly. Or maybe it's time to take a long, hard look in the mirror and accept that the fundraising event you've done for, say, the last 10 years, yeah, it's not really working. I know you like it, and I'm sorry to tell you, it's just not giving you the return on the investment. And as we know, cats, they're still dying disproportionately in shelters, so maybe your dog rescue organization, maybe you should consider starting to save cats if that need is greater where you live. I know. That kind of shift, that's a big step for any organization. And I'm certainly not saying anyone should take on more than they can handle. Always rescue responsibly, please. Now, my colleague Liz Finch, she spoke with several organizations about this topic. She's got a two-part series live right now on the Best Friends Network website. We'll have links in the show notes on your podcast player. You can also go directly to network.bestfriends.org. That's network.bestfriends.org. This type of transformation is underway right now at Operation Kindness down in Texas. They've really rethought the way their organization is relating to shelters, other rescues, and the public. Let me back up just a sec to May of 2021. Back on this podcast, we had Ed Jamison on as a guest. At one time, Ed was the chief animal control officer in Cleveland, Ohio. Then he was the director of Dallas Animal Services in Texas. But right around the time we interviewed him in 2021, he was transitioning to the role of CEO at Operation Kindness. It was a departure for Ed, leaving municipal sheltering for the nonprofit world. During that interview, he shared his excitement over the opportunity, specifically how excited he was to be able to provide support for municipal shelters now from the nonprofit side. I've always said that as government shelters started to get better, some nonprofits made the pivot to what their role should be in that community better than others did. And to have the ability to do that, and I don't think that government shelters like DAS should have 24-hour kitten nurseries. I think that Operation Kindnesses should have kitten nurseries. Um, DAS, we've got a part of a ward, but it's not very big. So as it fills up, we then drive dogs down to Austin. And Austin helps um, finish off the treatment for those parvo dogs so we can take the next in. Why the heck are we driving two hours away when we could drive 20 miles up the street to Operation Kindness? We've got a medical wing with a parvo ward in it. We will be that nonprofit that isn't telling the government shelters what we'll do for them. The government shelters are going to tell us what they need help with, and then we're going to develop a plan to help them. And I think that sky's the limit. Where we can collaborate, we'll collaborate. And everything in this North Texas swath here, this Interstate 35, Interstate 75 area, we want to be that go-to, especially in the medical realm. I know DAS is able to patch up a lot of animals due to the investment we made in their medical most don't have that. Most don't have x-ray machines and ultrasound machines and microscopes that can read anything and everything. We do. If somebody anywhere that's within our striking distance needs help, 
instead of finding a way to say no on the reasons that we can't do something, start training that in your brain. What is it going to take to get that answer to be a yes? And they seem to be pretty excited up to this point. I want to work for a place that's like that and to have the nimbleness. And again, we, we manage the bureaucracy that's just built in the big city. We manage that pretty well. But here on the nonprofit side, if you want it, find the money, go buy it and make it happen. And um, that's pretty exciting to be able to be that fleet afoot. I think we're just going to make things happen and, and really set a new standard that hopefully I think that government shelters across the country were able to look to DAS as they found a way to get this kind of stuff done. I want nonprofits that are trying to figure out how they fit in in their community now as government shelters get better to say, yeah, let's take that Operation Kindness model. And that's a pretty good model to follow. Again, that was back in May of 2021. Fast forward to this year's Best Friends National Conference in July. I ran into Ed. Hey, man, how you doing? How are things going? Super excited to hear about the progress. He then introduced me to the person he said was making it all happen at Operation Kindness, the Chief Operating Officer, Kelly Furness. Well, I'd like to start with you, if we can, Kelly. Who are you? What is your role at Operation Kindness? How long have you been there? So I am currently the Chief Operating Officer. I have been in this role for about a year, a little over a year. Uh, was the Director of Operations before that and the Director of Volunteer Services before that and a volunteer in the beginning. Uh, so I've been involved with Operation Kindness for about nine years. Before that, my world was very much in banking and mortgage from managing branches and training and leadership and all kinds of things. So it was a great fit to be able to come and really help the organization do what we're just talking about. It is a business. It's the greatest business on the planet because we get to save lives. But at the end of the day, it's a business. And so that's really the take that I've kind of brought into it is to be able to look at the processes and look at the way we approach everything and find ways to be able to make that better and faster and save more lives. Well, let's talk about Operation Kindness then. You, you know, when you and I talked at the conference, we talked about the sort of post-ed era, if you will. But what was the organization like, say, nine years ago when you started up through, you know, around the time Ed coming on board? Yeah, this organization in the last really nine years, I, I would say has changed dramatically. Obviously the world's changed, so they've gone through that. But at the same time that we were dealing with that, a little bit before and a little bit after that, we went through a $12.5 million renovation. <laughs> so that all was really coming to an end before Ed came on board as the CEO. Um, and our previous CEO was the right guy at the right time to be in that role because he was able to help us through COVID and through that construction change that we had. I, I think the biggest change that I would say I've seen with this organization is really that idea that we can do more. That's really where my head has been. Even when I first got involved as a volunteer, I got involved with the training team, um, a team of volunteers who did the training for new volunteers and existing volunteers. And I, I knew we could do that in a more effective way. That's how my brain works, I think, more than anything. So I had already kind of started to see some of those things happen. And even in the volunteer role, the director role that I had running the volunteer program, I was, I had my hands in a lot of things, being able to try to find those ways to improve things. You know, the volunteer managers that are out there are such an amazing audience. 
they have volunteers that help you in every area of an organization. So when leaders of your volunteer team can understand how those areas work or say, why, why, why do we do it that way? Then we're able to continue to improve that. So I think I just was, again, able to, to kind of step in and look at some of those things along the way. But we also hit that brick wall with COVID and um, construction. And so it kind of was every, like everybody just trying to keep your head above water and survive through that with short staff and ABC shifts and, you know, all of that. So I think we were really primed when Ed came on board. We were ready. Like the building was almost ready. We wanted to be able to to get into helping in better ways. We were going to have this new building or this new space that what are we going to do with it? How do we do more? So the organization was successful 10 years ago. Yeah. Operation Kindness was a life-saving organization. Absolutely. I mean, it's been that way for 46 years. So why change anything? Yeah, I would say that this organization, the way I've kind of phrased it is that it's been run like a mom and pop for 44 and a half to 45 of those years. And we did life-saving and we did help. It, it wasn't broken by any means. And I, I, we try to make sure that we are really clear with our staff about that because I don't want anybody to think it was broken. We could do more. We could save more lives. And we could do that without necessarily having to work everybody to the bone. I think everybody in this industry struggles with work-life balance anyway, but it's the ability to help more and, and do that. And so by finding those efficiencies, if we can get two more animals in today and get them into our system, that's two more lives that we saved or in kind of the grand scheme of thing, we helped to free up that space at that municipal shelter in most cases so that they didn't have to make those tough decisions. So that really is, is where it, it's evolving and a huge part of what Ed is bringing and where we're headed is to be able to have that kind of an impact just beyond the you know, metaphorical four walls that we have here. How do we save more lives? How do we have a bigger impact? as Operation Kindness across Dallas, across Texas, and at some point beyond. Obviously, one thing that Ed brought is that municipal sheltering background, you know, the perspective uh, of what is happening at shelters. And then, of course, how organizations like Operation Kindness can play a role in that success. What was the history like in terms of how Operation Kindness was working with shelters? Was that something that was happening already and then you've just been able to grow it? Or was this approach of, of really partnering with the shelter in that way, was that new to the organization? So I think what really shifted is, uh, that's a hard one to answer because the timing is really interesting. You know, he came in just as the construction is ending and as COVID is at least somewhat letting go a little bit, like we were still closed to the public when he started with us. We didn't reopen until May with appointments and then really fully opened at the end of July with our, our grand opening. So they're very entwined in a sense, but before he was coming in, I think where we really were, were we had a tendency to definitely be a little bit more focused on you know, those easy animals you could get in and get out. And we, we did that well. We were beginning to be able to, in some ways, help with medical cases, but we didn't really have the building to do that until the construction ended. So the idea that we could help the municipal shelters with medical cases that they really just didn't have any ability to do anything with was where we were headed. 
But Ed coming in and his background in municipal shelters really helped to open, I think, everybody's eyes to the potential of what Operation Kindness could really do. We're unique in that we're in that nonprofit space and we don't have to battle the same restrictions, but we've got to make adjustments to how we have an impact and it not just be us pushing cute fluffies through the door. How do we go and help those tougher cases, um, whether it's medical or you know, whatever else we can try to step in and help with. Well, that's interesting. And, you know, you don't have to do any of those things. You know, you don't have to do any of it. You can say, we're a good nonprofit. We're good at what we do. We're adequately funded. We have a good core staff. Our culture's good. Everybody's happy. You know, why risk changing what was already obviously a successful model? I think that's a big part of, we wanted to have a bigger impact, the leadership team. I wanted to have a bigger impact. I don't know if it's the competitive nature in me, if it is the compassion side of just caring for these animals. And I, I go back to this because this is who I am. I, I was brought into this organization to look at this place from the standpoint of a business. And in my mind, in doing that and finding ways that we could streamline things would help us have a bigger impact. So that was important to me. And it was important to the previous CEO. It, it just, the timing was that he was, was ready to retire um, as we, we came out of the construction and the COVID component of it. But that was, I think, a big part of why he brought me into it was definitely to help us kind of look at that. How do we, we can do the same work and do it more efficiently, but save 10, 20, 30 more lives, we're having a bigger impact. Operation Kindness is a phenomenal brand. It has been around for 46 years. How do we help continue to grow that? How do we become a, a bigger partner and do more? And to your point, we don't have to do any of that. We could stay the $5 million organization we were. That's not what we wanted to do. How many staff members do you have? Uh, interestingly enough, about 14 months ago, we had around 60 to 65. Today, we are approaching 110. That's a pretty dramatic increase in, in that short of a time, and that's to support the changes? It is. So we have, in this last year, added a kitten nursery. So we are purposefully trying to help the municipal shelters to take in those neonatals that they would not be able to care for and wouldn't really have any choice but to euthanize. We are now able to partner with them and be able to provide that care 24-7. That took staff, um, no way around it. So we have raised the money and worked hard to be able to support the staff that would need to be in there. We partnered with Best Friends to be able to have a mentor, Samantha out in LA, to help us be able to understand what we were doing. But that's an example of, I, I think, definitely in the Ed universe, there are things that he knows that the municipal shelters cannot do that we can if we want to, if we want to put the effort. And trust me, that kitten nursery is hard. It is extremely challenging and we are learning every single day, but we're saving lives that would have otherwise been euthanized in those shelters. So 60, 65 staff, you said you had a little over a year ago. You start to move these things forward, a kitten nursery. I mean, who could be against a kitten nursery? But that being said, these are changes in mission. And, you know, when it comes to your staff, somebody that was hired at Operation Kindness 
yesterday, 10 years ago, 40 years ago, they made a conscious decision to spend, you know, a third of their life or more at their workplace, which would be Operation Kindness, and you didn't have a kitten nursery. And then today you're going to say, hey, we're going to have a kitten nursery, and that's going to mean changes, and that may affect you. So I got to imagine there were people, maybe they weren't upset, maybe they weren't angry, maybe a little confused, maybe even scared. Did you hear concerns from staff? And, you know, how did you manage the shift internally? Yeah, absolutely. We heard concerns. And um, the pace we're moving at is much faster than we have in the past. Uh, we're, We're trying to have an impact very quickly. And that change is hard. Change is hard for almost everybody. I believe really strongly and we try to make sure we communicate really effectively the changes we're trying to make and why we're trying to make them and be there for people when they have those concerns and try to help address them. But I'll be completely honest that we've lost people in the last year, that this just wasn't the pace, this just wasn't the direction or this wasn't what they wanted to do. That that's gonna happen. Um, but I, we have fought like crazy to keep the ones that you know, wanna come with us and, and try to help educate and, and show them what we're trying to do. But it is hard. And, and there are definitely some people that, you know, the idea that they might need to be involved with overnight care, okay, that may not really be what works for you and we'll support you with where you wanna go and what you wanna do. Uh, I think that's been a piece that has been a real challenge to balance of we're gonna be moving quickly and we're gonna have expectations that we may not have had here for a while. You know, COVID, you tried to just keep your head above water now we're kind of getting back into the real world of it of, okay, we want to set some goals on how many animals we'll bring in this year and how many animals we'll adopt out. That works for some and it doesn't for others. And we try to help them stay. If, if it doesn't work, we'll try to help them with whatever the next step is they want to take in their careers. Well, I mean, that was going to be the question I had next, I think, which was, what does that look like? Best friends, you know, we've made a lot of changes. Julie Castle, our CEO, she's made a lot of changes uh, during her tenure. And some of them do mean ending things, ending programs or shifting focus. And doing that means there might be folks who have to take another role or potentially leave the organization. But that's been a big part of it to say, hey, we know things are changing. We want to help figure out what's next for you. Ideally, you stay with us, but maybe not. Are you giving severance packages, Kelly? You know, how are you determining how to manage all of this? You know, what if there just isn't a position for that person? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, how many resources are you putting towards this type of stuff? And is that sort of built into the where we want to be in three or five years that involves hiring new staff and maybe paying folks to maybe not be with us anymore if that's what has to happen? I will say that we have fortunately not reached the point where we've ended programs that we've had to make those types of decisions at this point. We're very much on the upward growth side of things of trying to be able to find ways to help. And fortunately, we found the resources to support that financially. The flip side of that, though, is when you have to make any kind of changes, and I've said this a minute ago, of it's so important that you try to be obviously as transparent as you can. I know that's that's a common phrase everybody says, but I think it's more important that you're really helping people to understand the why behind changes you're making. And that comes down to your leadership, your managers, supervisors, leads, whatever you call them in your organization. And I, I come from a world where I did leadership training. So it's really important to me that 
We're continuing to develop those skills in our managers. We are not perfect by any means. It is constantly on my mind and the director of HR, same thing. So she and I talk about ways we can help to continue to provide those skills to our managers and to help them be able to support their teams. It is tough and we are fortunate at Operation Kindness at this point that when we've been making these changes, it has meant growth opportunities. We've added managers, we have added positions as we continue to grow. So there are opportunities that have not really been here before. So we're, we're lucky to be on the more optimistic and positive side of that at this point. But, you know, if something were to happen and we were to have to go down that path, I've been there in the banking side of things where you're laying people off and you're having to make those tough decisions. Um, it is about trying to find the resources. How do you help them find that next career or job change or whatever it is? Uh, we just are really lucky at the moment. That's not what we've had to deal with just yet. Well, how about externally? You know, again, using my experience as a best friends, people feel very connected to our organization. They come to our sanctuary in Utah. They volunteer at our other locations. Not only are they getting to know the animals, they get to know the staff. They get to know us. So any changes in personnel or programs, I think can feel quite personal to people. You know, what has the reaction been the last few months with your supporters of Operation Kindness? It has been mostly positive because the changes that we're making are kind of hard to say, I don't like that. We're saving baby kittens. Who doesn't want to support that? <laughs> um, you know, we're, we're looking right now to be able to expand and we've just started a community initiatives program and we are working with people who struggle to be able to get that wellness or the surgery or the vaccinations. We're trying to step in and provide those resources. We are hoping here pretty soon we're going to try to help in the transport world. That's the first one I would say of everything I've just mentioned that may cause people to have some questions because we certainly have volunteers and, and probably others that they don't necessarily trust that we're going to send them somewhere good, that they're going to be taken care of as well as they would be taken care of here. And we've been talking about that and talking about how we need to make sure we really communicate effectively why there's a reason that transport has value. Why would we do this and how are we going to approach it? We didn't do that the time that that was brought up probably about four or five years ago and it it failed very quickly uh, that's where i hope ed and i are approaching things very differently that we are really trying to be very upfront and communicate so that people understand it but we're again very fortunate that the things that we're expanding and doing for the most part they're hard to say why why would you do that <laughs> to because they're saving more lives i think the place that we get the most frustration is certainly you know, it's amazing to have these growth opportunities that we have, but if you can't give that new role to all five people who applied for it, <laughs> there are some feelings that get hurt. And, you know, that's hard. And, and you hate that people, you know, maybe they thought they were going to get the job and that was additional money that would be, you know, supporting their family or whatever it may be. I try to make sure that what we do with those situations is that we turn around and say, okay, you obviously have an interest in doing these things. Let's talk about development. How do we help you gain those skills for the next time? And again, we're not perfect in getting all of that achieved, 
But that's the focus of where we're trying to go to say, okay, you know, this would have been a great job for you probably about two years down the road. How about we work on expanding your organizational skills and being able to help manage a calendar and, you know, give them some of those type of opportunities so that they would be ready the next time that comes up. That's an ironic part to have as a challenge when you're building the growth, but not everybody gets the the gig. (laughs) So how do you manage to those hurt feelings? A little bit. Well, internal culture, I enjoy the topic very much. I've always been very passionate about the culture at Best Friends as well. I think we're a great place to work. And the idea of getting everybody on the same page, driving towards the same goal, you know, when you see it happen, it's just so exciting, isn't it? Uh, how have things changed in terms of the way you're managing staff then? You know, are, are there more meetings? Are people being involved in things, not involved in decision making? You know, how are you informing folks of decisions? Or would you say you already had a culture, Kelly? You know, you built a culture that allowed you to make changes and be really open with staff. How has the culture played a role? Yeah. You know, if you you can look at COVID and we certainly can recognize all the challenges that that created for us, but there's a lot of silver linings that came out of COVID as well. And I know the, the Zoom fatigue everybody talks about, the reality is the idea that we can record a meeting and share it with people who couldn't be there has become a part of our life. We had an all staff meeting this morning that was, it's basically like a town hall. It's Ed having an opportunity to share kind of the latest and greatest of what's going on and just kind of take 10 minutes if that. So it's not a long, boring meeting sitting in. Uh, We used to do all those meetings where we would sit and every manager would give a report of what's going on in their department and you're falling asleep. 20 minutes in, probably 10 minutes in. We, we're trying not to do that. I don't, I don't like meetings for the sake of meetings. They, they should have purpose. And these all staff meetings where the bigger we get, the harder it is to get everybody together, let alone you're caring for animals. Everybody can't usually step away at the same time. It's become a way of life that we utilize some of the technology and it's in a good way. And people can go back and look at it if they weren't able to be there. It's their day off. So they don't have to call in to the town hall meeting today and they're enjoying some time off, they can catch it up later and do some of that. So I think we've definitely shifted a lot of the communication in that sense from a a more global perspective. And then we really rely very heavily on our managers to be able to communicate that information down. And if we recognize that that's not happening, then that's a coaching opportunity. You know, hey, let's talk about how you get this information to your team effectively. And help grow that skill for that manager. Well, that's something that's been a big part of my time here. You know, I worked remotely for 12 years or so, and I think, you know, it's good advice for everyone, regardless of your organization side. It's hard to get everyone together. And a lot of smaller organizations, you know, those folks are all volunteer and they may not have a facility. So there isn't even a place to gather for a meeting. So use a platform like Zoom, but also record it and then let people watch it when they can. Uh, and you're absolutely right. Keep those meetings short. Well, let's talk about the uh, Ed Fullant in the room. Elephant, Ed Never mind. Uh, but prior to joining you, Ed's career was municipal sheltering, right? And Operation Kindness is not a municipal shelter. As much as we maybe don't want to say it or believe it, I do think there's a split in this industry, right? We've got the municipal shelter, the shelter folks, and we've got the rescue folks. And I think things are better today, but historically, and I think there does continue to be friction with those two sides. I know I'm oversimplifying and being quite reductive and a very complex thing, but the point is Ed comes in, he's this transformational figure in the industry, but he's a shelter guy and he comes into Operation Kindness 
I, again, I cannot imagine that everybody was like, woo, thank goodness Ed is here. This is going to be great. We're going to keep doing the same stuff. I imagine there were a lot of people going, holy, you know what? That guy Ed is here. What is this going to mean? He's from Dallas Animal Services. I've seen stuff online or on the news about them, and now he's going to want to turn us into that. Was there that kind of fear? I don't think there was that kind of fear. I, I will say there's certainly going to be trepidation because you you're getting a new boss. That's there regardless of who it was coming in. The reputation of what he achieved at DAS and the ability to expand life-saving at the fourth largest, I think it is. I mean, they have something like 40,000 animals that come through their doors a year. What he achieved in something of that space is, is amazing. But yeah, there's trepidation. You don't know what to expect. You're not sure what is going to happen. And you know, some people knew him and, and knew a lot of that. And there are others that it was kind of, you know, you're going in blind. The idea that he comes from that municipal side of things and is now coming to the dark side, um, whichever way you want to kind of look at that. The beauty of that and what I've seen him do at conferences that he speaks at and he does it here all the time is he helps you see from the other perspective. And I think that's what we're trying to do as well to help municipal shelters see us and see where we can help and to see what our limitations are. Because there are limitations on both sides. And that has probably been the most amazing part for me is we're bringing the sides together. We're, we're, it's really a true goal of what we're trying to do because we should be helping them. That, that's, that's, we're the nonprofit that can try to find a way to do that. But we also have to adapt, and that's what is the scary part with any new boss, but Ed in particular, because he's definitely a visionary. Um, he's very progressive in how he thinks we should proceed. So back to what we said a little earlier, you either jump on or you get off the train. I, I mean, it, you, you have to believe in where he's taking us. And the, the people that are working here at this point and are a part of this team, believe in what he's looking to achieve. And I know he wants to change animal welfare for the best. And you can't do that without pulling the two sides together. How much have you been able to do that? You know, I mean, 14 months isn't a huge amount of time, but how are you bridging the sides? Are your staff members going to Dallas Animal Services? You know, even if their job doesn't require it, just to visit, to be there, see what's going on so that when you all are talking about the needs and the reasons that they can actually connect to that. You know, I think you mentioned something like that earlier, and I think it's true that it's easy to sit back and say, we're this or you're that, but if I actually walk in the door at Dallas Animal Services and I talk to the staff, I spend time there, see what even one day of that, you know, 30,000 plus annual intake looks like, I think it probably pretty quickly realigns your brain to the situation, right? And the role that you can play, 30,000, that's just a number until you're sitting at that front desk on a Wednesday. Have you been able to do things like that, you know, maybe with the onboarding process or just in an ongoing way? So the issues you're solving for, you know, they're not just theoretical to folks maybe that don't have that shelter experience. Now that's a really good idea. Well, we may steal that one, but we have been having people go. So we, uh, just as a good example, you know, how you clean a kennel how do we clean a kennel? How long does it take us to clean a kennel? What else does a kennel staff person do? 
what does that look like compared to DAS when you've got that kind of volume? So we sent a bunch of our kennel team over there to, to be able to kind of watch that process and understand a little bit and brought back ideas and shared ideas as well. We did the same thing with um, going over and watching how they ran play groups uh, before Shawnee came to us and then we started doing that. Our medical team has gone over there. We actually, two nights ago, several of the senior staff went over to be a part of DAS's starting a coalition with some of the local partners that they have to try to just get us working better together. So they're trying to be able to do that kind of now from that side of it. Ed's kind of on this side of it, but between him and Melissa, they're working to be able to do that. So there's there's the big player definitely in the Dallas area. So it's it's a group that we need to support the the work they have to achieve can't be done without the support of all of these other groups. So, yes, we've done a little bit of both. I do love the idea of somehow finding a way to sneak that into kind of a new hire piece of it. We haven't done that yet, but ask me about that another time. We'll see if I've added that in. <laughs> what was that feedback then for the staff that, you know, went to check out the playgroup, see that animal care process? For those that hadn't really experienced an open admission municipal shelter like that, you know, what did you hear back from them? I, I got to think it gives them some appreciation for the position they're in and the resources that Operation Kindness has. But did it make them realize, you know, like, maybe we could do this a little bit faster. Maybe we could be doing a little bit more here or there. Yeah, I think it was a little bit on both sides. There were things that we took back that was like, oh, that's a really good idea. And, you know, to be a shelter of that size and managing disease transmission is a, a huge challenge. We have that challenge just on a smaller scale, but they had some things that they had set up the way that they kind of manage just different equipment that color-coded it and some of that kind of stuff. We stole that and we brought those ideas back. But we also recognize where we're very different. Their kennel staff um, really is focused on cleaning those kennels. That's what they do all day. We have our kennel staff that's involved not only in cleaning, but in uh, giving out enrichment and in helping with play groups and doing some things that our role is a little more morphed uh, than theirs is. It's, it's got a little bit more stuff involved in the job description not good or bad, not right or wrong, just different. And so the idea of trying to understand, okay, you can clean a kennel in X amount of time. It, does that work in our place where we have five different types of kennels and how do we adjust that or what do we learn from that? So yeah, they definitely came back with an appreciation of just how much that organization in particular has to achieve. It, it is daunting when you're talking about that number of animals. I think our staff would tell you they feel like their day is very full as well. It just may look a little bit different, but the idea of understanding both sides is the crucial part of that. The more that we can understand that, the more we work together and we quit focusing on the differences, we focus on where we can really help each other. Well, I don't want to keep focusing on like all the problems, Kelly, but for anyone in this position right now, you know, looking to understand how to save more lives in their own community, what holds them back may well be that fear of what could happen. So I think it's important to talk this through. Are there things that have happened over the last few months, even years, that, you know, you didn't see coming or you, you just made things more difficult? Now in hindsight, you go, God, wish I'd known about that. You know, for organizations that are in this type of process, in this situation, what can we learn from you? What can we learn from Operation Kindness so that we can all try to avoid it? Let me start with the first one that was probably the most critical for us. Data, data, data. <laughs> and if you know Ed, 
you know how important that is. And I believe the exact same thing. I, I would say when I first uh, got involved in the operational side of this organization, we were probably using PetPoint, which is our database system, about 5% of its capability. We didn't really have reports beyond here's what got adopted today. And I'm not joking. Like, that was about the extent of what we could tell you. We have over 90 reports today. And the irony of that is it, it makes us want more. Like now we want to dissect even more into kind of what we have with that. So I would definitely say when you think about sharing information and, and finding um, ways to help your listeners, make sure that you are making the most of your information because that's how we, as this organization gets bigger, it's how we identify where we have problems. And we find them all the time. And as you have staffing changes, you know, little things creep in and you have to kind of re-level set with some things. You know, it's probably the easy answer to say we struggle with the same thing everybody else that's listening would struggle with. And that's the staffing challenges right now are crazy. It's the idea that we get excited somebody showed up to an interview. That's that's weird. But then you hire somebody and you're holding your breath until they start that's become a norm with some of the stuff that does make it really challenging. And I think we struggle with the fact that in the past, our purpose, our mission really drove a lot of why people wanted to come work in animal welfare. We're having to think a little outside of the box for that right now. We haven't solved that, that riddle, but we're trying to kind of find different ways. And we, we talked about that in some of the sessions at Best Friends in, in North Carolina of you know, what are you doing? And we're, we're helping to provide supplemental income for Netflix. And, you know, we're doing gas cards and we're all those kind of things. You're just trying to kind of find what fits for your team. But, you know, those are things that keep you up at night because the more you're struggling with that staff, the more the people you have are getting worn out. And it's just a vicious cycle to that. So those are kind of two big things. Like I said, the, the staffing is probably the most common that everybody's dealing with, but it's, we're growing so fast. And so I think it comes back to just constantly focusing on communicate, communicate, understand what's happening in your building. When you see a spike, dig into it. And we try to figure out what it is. It doesn't mean we always know, but we try to put in the time and and find out what it is that we can do to make that problem go away and make things more effective and more efficient. Let's talk about fundraising. I happen to believe that when you do the right things for the right reasons, good things happen. I'm sure a development person listening to this is going to say, John, you're making it sound as if money just falls from the sky when you do the right things. Obviously not. Um, you know, but when we're making changes like this as uh, an organization, you know, we're changing the mission, you know, or we're shifting in a way that, you know, somebody who gave to us yesterday, Kelly, are they still going to give to us today, tomorrow? You know, the changes that you're making, you mentioned earlier, are kind of hard for people to find fault with, like a kitten nursery. But not everyone is going to be behind a kitten nursery. Not everyone is going to think that that's the best use of resources for Operation Kindness. So hopefully, you know, I can't imagine any development person disagreeing with trying to raise money for, uh, you know, a kitten nursery and Operation Kindness. But, you know, has the response from development been positive? Our development team is incredible and they have risen to the challenge I mean, Ed definitely has put some pretty lofty goals out there for this past year, which is kind of his first full fiscal year. We just ended fiscal at the end of June and bigger goals this year. And to your point, I think Ed and I would agree with you that the idea that we're doing good things, that money should follow. 
we, we definitely have to have that. If you don't believe that, we shouldn't be doing what we're doing. I also come from that world of, you know, you got to spend money to make money in some ways. But ever, as we said a minute ago, the decisions we've made and the things that we are doing, whether it's the kitten nursery, whether it is community initiatives or transport, they're things that feel like no brainers to why you would want to help an organization be able to move in those directions. So we're fortunate in that situation. It doesn't make the development team's job easy. They are, are working incredibly hard to be able to do that. The good news is, as we know from the fundraising side of the house, when you have a sexy story, when you have something that has that kind of weight behind it of that type of life saving, it makes your job a little easier. You have something to show the work that we're doing besides just we're doing the same thing we were doing last year. We're able to kind of put that foot forward and be able to show that. So that has definitely helped us from a fundraising perspective. Um, it is scary to kind of step out there. And I think in a lot of cases, I get it that organizations need to have that money in the bank before they can consider getting involved in that program, but that can take a lot of time. So that partnership with your development team becomes extremely critical because in some cases we're getting ourselves a little bit, you know, cart before the horse, but that's worked out because the things that we're doing and the hard work that Ed does obviously in being able to share the mission of what we're trying to do and beyond, because to your point, our mission should be expanding here with what we're doing. That partnership between him as the CEO and that development team and being able to really get the good word out of what it is that we're doing, I think is really what helps the donors respond to the work that we're doing here. Where do you think Operation Kindness will be in five years? You know, this community initiative piece is huge. And I think as we move through the course of these next few years, you know, in every conference that we've attended this year, we've heard about the vet shortage. And we are one of the fortunate, fortunate organizations that has vets. And we're putting them to use beyond the needs of this shelter, this building and the animals we have here. We are putting those vets and that medical team to work in the community and in helping other shelters who don't have medical support. So in my mind, you know, right now we are working with one team. We have one vet and one community initiatives manager and, and a couple of vet techs. And in my mind, in the next five years, that could be multiple teams that are able to support not just Dallas. I, I mean, they're in Houston right now as we speak, helping with a mega adoption event. They're doing surgeries today. So the idea that I think Ed, when he first started, talked about Operation Kindness having the biggest impact in North Texas, I'm past that. <laughs> We're gonna have the biggest impact in Texas and hopefully the Southwest. And I, I just envision that we continue to find ways to be able to grow and help and make that impact in the life-saving across as big of an area as we can. So for the moment, I'll set my sights on Texas, but uh, I definitely feel like we're, we're moving in a direction that we're gonna be able to have a bigger impact than that. Anything else about this, Kelly? You know, I mean, I know it's such a huge topic, so many different facets to it, uh, but there are things that maybe you thought about ahead of the conversation that you wanted to talk about we didn't touch on. No, I, I'm gonna echo what we said. If you are, whatever side of the fence you're on, you know, whether it's municipal, whether it's rescue, have conversations, talk, and, and talk about what works for you, talk about what doesn't, and be open to hearing why it, it's hard for the other side 
I think the more that we have done that, and I've, I think we've done a lot of that in these conferences this year, that the more that's happening, the more you, you grow together and are able to find solutions that at the end of the day, save these animals' lives. And I, I hope that's what people walk away with from any time they listen to a podcast or anything that they get some education around. It's focus on where you can find that common ground. You know, that goes beyond just this topic. I think you could say that for a lot of things. But my hope is that that's where we can get. And if you are frustrated with another organization that you wish would work with you in a different way, try to find a way to have an, a, a conversation about that that's productive and can help you guys achieve more in the long run. And lastly, I forgot to ask, but how are things going with the kitten nursery? Our kitten nursery is doing good. We opened on May 9th. Like I said, we have definitely been learning a lot. The idea that this place is now a 24-7 operation is very different in the world that we have. And our team is learning new ways to do staffing and adjust to that and ways to communicate when you have staff that you would never see. Um, but it is amazing to see those little guys come through and be able to end up getting adopted on the other end. We're, we're obviously still in kitten season to an extent in Texas. Uh, so we're, we're going to keep learning as we continue through the season. Um, Ed has said many times the first year of a kitten nursery is extremely hard. He is 100% correct. Um, but we're really pleased with what we've learned and the lives we've saved and it's, I mean, what's better than, you know, being able to help a little bitty five-day-old kitten. It's great. Thank you to Bethany Hines, Kayla Sebo, Whitney Blyton, Kim Clonch, Tawny Hammond, and Mark Peralta. My name is John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast.